Okay, so we have been looking at a number of passages over the last few weeks. Colin kicked us off talking about how in Christ we're not condemned. There's no condemnation for us. Then Polly spoke about how in Christ we've been given the Spirit of God that makes us as bold as a lion. And last week John spoke um, on the subject of God now lives in us, that the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God now resides in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's true of you. And we've been doing this series, well, we're doing this series for a number of reasons. Uh, The first is really that uh, all of us are after acceptance, security, significance in life, and we all search for it in all kinds of different places. Many of us uh, act and live as though life is one big game of, um, you remember that the lifeboat game you used to play at school? Uh, maybe you didn't, but at school we used to play this game where you'd have to uh, argue with people about why you should stay in the lifeboat. In other words, argue your value and worth to the group um, as part of a school exercise. I wasn't just being bullied. And, uh, and you had to argue your place in the lifeboat and if you were deemed valuable enough you weren't kicked out and we often go through life as though life is a, is a series of exercises like that where we have to prove our value and our worth and find significance and acceptance in different places and when we become a Christian we find that we are more loved more accepted and more significant than we could ever hope to have imagined and so we want to unpack that because that's a that's a human issue that's not just a Christian non-Christian issue that's for all of us we're all longing for that so that's the first reason we've been doing this series the second is that um well, I, I understand that the implications for our lives of following Jesus are huge and and I've had a number of significant experiences and encounters, if you like, in my life as a Christian. When I became a Christian for the first time, experienced a power and a presence like I'd never known before. It changed me. When I was filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time, it changed me powerfully, gave me some confidence and boldness that I didn't otherwise have. When I've seen some people healed and seen some miracles, it's opened my eyes to the amazingness of God. But the most significant encounter that I've ever had in my Christian life wasn't a one-off encounter. It's been a serious of encounters with the truth about who I am in God. There was a, a, an intense seri- period in my life where I got hold of some of these verses that we've been doing and just reflected on them daily and daily felt the truth of them start to impact me more and more and it changed my life. And many of us will have been this summer to a number of Christian festivals and conferences like New Day where we send our young people and at those conferences we encounter God in a powerful way. And then we come back to normal life. And those powerful encounters are significant and wonderful. We thank God for what he does there. But if we don't learn to live well after the event of engaging with God during the summer, we end up in the same ruts that we found ourselves in before. So those conferences and summer festivals are often like the kind of shove that gets the car out of the rut so you can get driving again. Now we need to learn to be better drivers with our life and with our thinking. So those are some of the reasons, two of the reasons why we're doing this series. And if you are a Christian today, if you're in Christ, the Bible says, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You're a child of God. You've been forgiven by God. You're now justified. You've been redeemed of God. You're now part of the body of Christ, God's people. And you're a disciple. That means a student, a learner of Christ's. And today we're looking at this, that if you are in Christ, you are God's friend. You are God's friend. Now, we talk about in Christ, and I thought just as a visual way of explaining this theological term in Christ and in, in not. So Adam, I'm, 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 sorry, let's start again, my words. Ed, could you come out here? I want to present something to you. Uh, let's have Ed and Zizi and Catherine come and join us out here for a sec. 
So you stand here, just there for me in that white line. Just make sure you're, yep, that's fine. And, uh, and you stand over here for me. <laughs> now, the way the Bible talks about the human race is it says that there are essentially two groups of people. Not good people and bad people. Not, not funny people and unfunny or funnier people. Not moral and immoral people. The Bible talks about there being two groups of people. Those who are yeah, cool, you know what? Sorry, I'm just standing there like a lemon where you go, <laughs> talking to me. There are two groups of people, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. So Catherine, come and stand out here for me. <laughs> if, you, if you are a member of the human race today, you are born automatically into this species, if you like, with Adam, the first man, as your representative head. Just as when you were kids, who your parents were affected you greatly. It was your reputation. When you went to school, people would say, oh, I know who you are, you know, because your, your reputation precedes you because of who you are. Oh, you're a, you're a Chisholm, are you? We've had them around. So it is for you as a human being. You are part of the Adamic race in Adam. And all of us are in that. We're born in that. That's our nature by birth and choice, if you like. But when you become a Christian, which means when you decide to repent of your sin and start following Jesus, you switch. And you switch from being in Adam and you're now in Christ. Which means that all of the reputation of Christ is now yours. So whereas before the reputation of Adam went ahead of you and affected your behaviors and choices, now the reputation of Christ goes ahead of you and affects your behaviors and choices. That's significant. This isn't a difference between goodies and baddies. Sinners and saints necessarily, though that's a part of it. It's in Adam and in Christ. You can be a scoundrel in Adam, making poor life choices, become a follower of Jesus, and still be a scoundrel and make poor life choices. But the difference is you're now in Christ, and so you're looking to learn from him instead of him. That's the difference. Thank you. You can sit back down. So let's read today from, uh, we're going to be looking at John's Gospel. This is the account of what Jesus said in chapter 15, and we'll focus home in on a few words. This is John 15, reading verses 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus is joyful. Jesus was a, a happy, um, contented person. The images of Jesus in our stained glass windows, not these ones, they don't help us because they don't present a joyful, exciting Jesus. Yet Jesus was a joyful person. That wasn't mean he was always happy, that life isn't about skipping and rainbows. Jesus was joy. He had a deep contentment and satisfaction with who he is. The Bible says he was filled with the oil of gladness, which is another way of saying he was really, it's a religious way of saying he was really happy because he knew God. He knew his acceptance. He knew his significance. He knew his security in God. Now, getting that, Jesus says, I'm going to give this to you. I'm telling you this so that my joy might be in you. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. 
These are amazing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> this is my command. Love each other. Sorry. These are amazing verses. An amazing truth in them. But beginning with the statement that in Christ you are God's friend is rather like the punchline to a joke. We kind of, in order to fully appreciate it and understand, we need to back up and go, let me, what's behind that statement? You see, if I was to stand here and tell you I, I quit my last job because it was soul destroying, that would mean nothing to you. But if I told you I quit my last job working in a shoe disposal factory because it was soul destroying, it might, it might give a chuckle or it might make you regret coming to church this morning. <laughs> Because you understand the context and the background. So it is. If you're in Christ, you're God's friend. Now let's back up. And so to begin with, I want to talk a little bit about friendship. The Bible says that we are designed for friendship. We don't talk about this love, the love of friendship, too much. We sung about it today. There might be coincidence in that or, or maybe not. But we, the reason you like friendship, the reason we are made for friendship is because we are made in the image and likeness of God, the Bible tells us. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that God has a beard and arms in heaven and is pointing like this in the Michelangelo picture. What it means is that we represent God and are made like him. So God, since before eternity began, was community. He was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing together in perfect community and harmony with unity and submission and preference and love and friendship. Now, we have been made in the image and likeness of God, so we are designed for friendship. And when God made Adam, he looked at him and said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, that wasn't because he, he doesn't know what to wear. It was because a man is made for companionship, and so he makes Eve. And together, Adam and Eve, he says, now, male and female, they are made in the image and likeness of God. Man on his own does not represent God. Woman on her own does not represent God. Together, as a species, male and female, we represent God, which gives each of our genders and sexes tremendous value and worth. That together we're made in the image and likeness of God. We don't believe in men ahead of women, that's chauvinism. We don't believe in women ahead of men, that's feminism. We believe in men and women side by side, together, made in the image and likeness of God, made for friendship, made for companionship. And now C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, um, talking about friendship uh, as, a, as a love, he says that uh, in ancient and medieval times, the concept of friendship was understood more deeply. It was seen as a deeper expression of love and we understand it today. You see, in ancient cultures, the physical, romantic, sexual side of love wasn't prized as highly as the friendship, deeper, soul-level kind of love. In fact, the, the way the ancients wrote about friendship was that if you find yourself with a best friend and experience that kind of love, it, it raises you to the level of gods and angels, they said. Now, for us, we prize friendship, we're made for it, but in our society, it's becoming increasingly harder to form meaningful, deep, soul-level friendships because our culture is increasingly obsessed with the romantic form of love and the sexual side of love. And so for a man and a man to become best friends or for a woman and a woman to become best friends, their friendship is stopped by our culture's overriding obsession with sex and romance because of the concern of homosexual activity. So if you see a, a couple of guys on holiday or a couple of girls on holiday together, in close friendship together, 
because of our cultural wiring, we think of that as being less than or more than just a friendship. That's because of our cultural backdrop. We need to understand that. But to have a best friend, to have someone that you can share every part of your life with, is a beautiful, life-enriching experience that we were made for. There's, there's very little more enjoyable, is there, than, than being with the person that knows you the best and just being able to be yourself, just being able to relax. An evening with friends, perhaps, having dinner together where conversation's flowing, people love one another together, companionship. It's a beautiful part of life. The Bible talks a bit about friendship. It says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, that deep friendship is faithful. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. That when you've got a friend so close that you can be that honest with one another, when you appreciate even the criticism that a friend gives you, it's a beautiful thing. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. The Bible elevates friendship to a high level, saying that a deep friend is a, is a, is a blessing from God to be enjoyed. It makes you wise to walk with wise people. So we're designed for it, but also we search for it. That's, that's what I hinted at, I suppose, with our, at the beginning when I talked about our quest for acceptance is a search for friendship and for identity and belonging. And in today's world of social media, we have never been more connected to our friends than we've ever been before. Uh, we have hundreds of friends that if we wanted to, at a moment's notice, we can log on and speak to. A survey was done that said that the, the average Facebook user has 130 Facebook friends. 130 Facebook friends. And yet, a survey was done in 2011 by um, Cornell University. They interviewed over 2,000 people asking them about friendship. And the survey revealed that, on average, an adult has... Two close friends. Uh, and reportedly, women have fewer close friends than men, but on average, an, an adult will have two close friends compared to the same survey that was done 25 years ago that revealed that an average, on average, an adult would have three close friends. That with the explosion of social media and the access to all these people all the time at any place in, in time, in history, or whatever, we still prize one or two close friends. In fact, if the survey's to be trusted, which my wife tells me, I don't believe that, but if the survey's to be trusted, she's true when I told her, if the survey's to be trusted, then we're becoming, it's becoming harder for us to make close friends with people. And yet, we search for it and we need it. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs that he famously made. Um, on the bottom rung uh, was uh, the, the needs for physical needs like food and shelter, then safety needs. But on the third layer of Maslow's hierarchy of needs was this need for friendship. Psychologists tell us that all of us are, have this need within us to be told by some outside source that we are accepted, that we are loved, that it's good that we exist, that all of us live lives searching for that person or that outside person to affirm us and tell us that. Now, when Jesus was on the earth and was baptized in obedience to what the Bible says, uh, he came up out of the water and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And so Jesus had this very public display of affection and acceptance from God the Father. And he lived his life as one knowing, I've been accepted by God. It made all the difference even to Jesus. So we're designed for it, we search for it, but the Bible's story is that we are unable 
to have it because by nature we are enemies of God. And we're able to have it with one another. That's not what I mean. The Bible says, though, that from our birth, we are enemies of God, estranged from him, unable to be friends with God. So we sing songs like, I'm a friend of God, and we get happy about that because previous to being in Christ, we weren't friends of God. We were enemies of his. See, the Bible's story, the human story in here, is all about how our existence got flipped, turned upside down, It's a story that will take a minute to sit right there. Let's talk about how the Bible says that we're the fallen race that we are. In West Babylonia, we were born and raised in Eden, a garden we spent most of our early days. We were chilling out, maxing, relaxing, cool, and friends with God. So no need for school. Then a couple of lies from the great accuser started making trouble in our paradise. We took one little bite. And then got scared. Now we're enemies with God, so we better beware. That was the lyrics reworked from, thank you. (laughs) Half the room are sniggering, half the room going, what is this? It's the lyrics from an old TV show reworked, and I didn't run it by my wife, so I'm not sure if that was a good idea. (laughs) The Bible story is that we are angry at God, enemies of his... um, Often when people become Christians, they talk about their life before, and when something happens, they say, I was angry at God. And for me as a teenager growing up, God was my favorite swear word. It was just the best way of venting how angry I felt at the world was, God, I could do that with venom because because I was an enemy of God. So friendship, we've been designed for it, we search for it, but we're unable to have it. But now, this is why... uh, this is why today's subject is so significant. Now in Christ, we've become friends with God. That God has offered us friendship. So we're going to have a look at some of the, the big ideas in the reading that I started this morning with. And essentially we see from this reading that we are not servants. We're not servants, but we're friends and we're not enemies, but we're allies. See, before Jesus arrived on the scene in the New Testament, from what I can see in the Old Testament, there was only two people that were referred to as friends of God. Abraham, there was lots of people who were servants of God. The nation as a whole was referred to as the people of God, or Israel, my son, but only two people were referred to as friends, Abraham and Moses. So the Bible says that Abraham trusted God, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. That means because he trusted God, he was given right standing before God, and he was a friend of God's. That's what the book of James tells us about Abraham and elsewhere. And Moses, it says that of Moses, he spoke to God face to face as a man does a friend. So these two examples of people in the Old Testament. And so from from their example, we can see that friendship looks like obedience and trust and intimacy. Conversation. Speaking face to face. And actually in the reading that we had, that's what Jesus said. He said in verse 14, you're my friends if you do what I command. And in verse 15, he says, I've told you everything. In other words, I've spoken face to face with you. And if you obey me, then that's what you're a friend of mine. Now, in Christ, our status of servant has been replaced with that of friend. And I run a a gap year training program called Impact, uh, where people over the age of 18 take a year out from life to serve in the church and grow in their relationship with God. And often in the interview process, we'll talk to them and we'll say, so why do you want to do impact training? And often the phrase that's used is they'll say, I want to serve God. Now, I know what they mean. 
And that's not a wrong thing to say. But I almost I want to say, yeah, you can serve God, but you know you actually it's something more exciting than that. You're a friend of his. You've actually been invited to partner with God, not serve him. That's the shocking statement of what Jesus is saying. He contrasts servants and friends. So in verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. See, servants don't understand the business that they're part of. They just do what they're told. Just I'll hand this out on the door, sell this product, make sure you do this, don't turn up late for that. They just, they do a job. One Bible commentator says that slaves and servants are just are mere instruments to do what their master tells them to do. You're not a servant but a friend now in Christ. So that means when you come to God, you can just begin by saying, hi friend, hey buddy. We do so reverently, understanding who mighty God is, but we can do so confidently because he's our friend. You see, the difference between a a servant and a friend is the difference between a spoon that stirs the pot and the cook that makes the dish. And God has invited you to not just stir the pot, but to make the dish, to partner with him. So Jesus says, everything, there it is, everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known. In other words, we've become stakeholders now in what God's doing on planet Earth. If you're a Christian, you've been trusted and brought into the confidence of the Son of God. Now, imagine the scene fictitious though it is, but imagine the scene of the Father God talking to the Son of God, Jesus, talking about his business and what he wants to do on the earth, and the the redemption and the justice and the peace and the restoration he wants to bring. And imagine him talking to the Son about this plan and seeing you standing there. Imagine the Father looking at the Son saying, can I talk in front of them? Jesus would say, of course. What you can say to me, you can say to them, because everything you told me, I tell them anyway, because they're my friend. If you're a Christian, That's the position that you occupy. There's transparency. There's no secrecy. You can ask God for anything, about anything. He wants relationship with us. This friendship speaks of inclusion rather than a servant, which is exclusion. Nothing's off limits. Ask what you like. In fact, Jesus says this, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Jesus wants us to be those who are asking and asking and asking, building friendship with him. Now, the key to that verse is that Jesus says, ask in my name, which means that we don't, go, we don't necessarily have permission to get, ask for any kind of thing that we want on planet Earth, but we ask for things in Jesus' name. So we say, oh, with the authority and backing of Jesus, in line with his will, I want to ask for this. So if I was to pick up the guitar and, saying, I'm do, I'm, and start smashing the guitar up and say, I'm doing this in the name of John, John would say, no, you're not doing that in my name. I don't want you to do that. And so when we pray, saying in the name of Jesus is not just a tag on at the end of prayer. It's actually the very right that we have to pray. Saying, and it's the confidence that we have when we pray. I can ask for this because I'm asking it in Jesus' name, with his backing, with his authority. So in Christ, we're friends, not servants, but we're also allies, not enemies. You now occupy a status as friend, not to serve, but to partner. Jesus' death on the cross has made that possible for us. 
See, Jesus saying to his disciples here, I now call you friends, not servants, he can say that because he has in mind something that's about to occur just a few days after this conversation where he's going to lay down his life for the sins of the world. And in doing that, he's going to take upon himself all of the enmity between God and man so that anyone who now transfers from Adam into Christ becomes a friend because they're in Christ. So Jesus on the cross could say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And that was aimed at us. Now, we're allies and partners of Jesus. A friend is an ally that you fight with, that you can argue with, that you can pray with, that you share the gospel with, that you, you work side by side with. See, we, div- we now are in a relationship with Jesus where we are able to partner with him and team with him on the things that he wants to do. So when Jesus was here, what did he do? He restored broken people. He brought justice to situations. He trusted God in all circumstances, under all kinds of pressures. He kept doing that, and he kept encouraging others to do that. And so we do that. Jesus established gospel-centered communities and churches, and so we work to establish gospel-centered communities and churches. We, we work to build gospel-centered homes where Jesus is honored and exalted there. We, we look to live now as, as Jesus-honoring employees, and the way that we approach life is different because we're in Christ and because we're now partners with him. So Jesus puts it this way. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now, being commanded to love, we're like, how, how can you command someone to love? That reminds me of a book I read by George Orwell in 1984, where Big Brother commands the citizens of the state to love the totalitarian dictator. Like, can you command love from your subjects? Well, no, but Jesus can. Jesus can because of the the next verse, greater love has none than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus can command us to love because he has gone ahead of us and done the ultimate act of love that anyone could have ever done. So he's not asking us to do anything that he himself has not done. Jesus says, love as you have been loved. Parent as God the Father has parented you. Build community as God the Father, Son, and Spirit are living in community. That's the blueprint that we look to emulate. Now, on hearing this statement that in Christ we are friends of God, I'm sure many of us would have all kinds of objections or or blockages, if you like, between this truth sinking from here to here. We're like, oh yeah, but what about this? What about that? Or if you knew what I was like, God surely doesn't call me friend. You don't know what I've been thinking about yesterday or what I did last week. Oh, God doesn't call me friend. I don't read the Bible very often. I can't remember the last time I prayed. I'm not this, I'm not that. We put all kinds of objections and barriers between us and God. I mess up. I never pray. Which actually leads to one one final observation from this text. That in Christ, you have been chosen and accepted by God. What we search for, we've found, but not because we found it, but because he revealed it to us. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. God has chosen you. He's sent you a friend request, if you like. Though you were an enemy of God, born angry at God, 
God searched you out. He knows what you're like, and he still chose you. You are accepted, and you are secure in that acceptance now. Oh, but I don't feel it. I, your feelings are not a good way of judging truth. Let me say that. You don't trust your feelings. You trust the truth as revealed in God's word. Your feelings change. They come and go. But the word of God is eternal. It lasts forever. And as I was looking at this, I came across an example of Jesus talking about friendship that just sealed this deal in my own heart and mind, if you like. That in Christ, you are so loved and so secure that we are accepted now like we can't imagine. And this verse secured it for me. So Matthew 26, I'll read it to you. In verse 50 of Matthew 26, Jesus is about to be arrested. The Roman soldiers are coming to get him. They're going to take him away for a flogging uh, or false trial, flogging, crucifixion and burial. His time's up. He's got very few hours left on the earth. One of his closest friends, one of his 12, has betrayed him and have told the Jewish leaders and the Roman centurions where they can find him. So Judas Iscariot, leading this army or brigand, if you like, of soldiers, comes to Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 50 of Matthew 26, Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up, came up laid hands on Jesus, and seized him. I'm going to read that again. Jesus said to Judas Iscariot, who's betrayed him to the Romans, that means that he's going to have to go through and endure the most excruciating form of death and execution ever invented by man. Jesus knows this is coming. He's been agonizing about it in the garden, sweating earnestly and intensely, wrestling with whether or not he needed to do this. I do need, he's going through this. He's agonizing. Judas Iscariot, who's been with him for three years. Judas Iscariot, who was a nobody who was part of a revolutionary group of people looking to overthrow the Romans. And Jesus came to Judas and said, look, don't fight for that cause. Fight for my cause. Follow me. Jesus gave Judas a job, gave him a calling, gave him a reason to exist. Jesus made Judas famous for all time. We talk about him now. He's, got, uh, he's, got, he's been immortalized in our memories and in our cultures. And he's betrayed him. And how does Jesus respond to that betrayal? Friend. Do what you came to do. Jesus calls Judas a friend, even in that moment. Jesus calls you a friend, and if he's called you a friend once, he'll call you a friend for the rest of your life. It's not conditional upon you being able to uphold some high standard of living not conditional upon you getting a squeaky clean life, making changes, making all the wisest choices now. It's not conditional upon that. It's conditional on the fact that once you're in Adam, now you're in Christ, and in Christ God says, friend, come and talk to me, friend. Let's relate to one another, friend. Let's do life together, friend. See, we come to God, and often, if you're like me, I come to God as a genie in a lamp, and I want a genie to fix my problems, whereas Jesus says God is a father who wants friendship. Oh, I want this genie. I can just tell him what to do, and he'll do it. Yeah, he can do that, but he's your friend, and he wants to live with you through life. You are more accepted then than you can ever imagine, more loved than you could ever dare to imagine, and daily then. We need to claim this identity as our identity. After Jesus was baptized and he heard this voice of acceptance from heaven, he was led out 
into the wilderness where he fasted for, from food for 40 days. And at the end of that time, Satan, the great accuser, came and tempted him to all kinds of things. He said, well, why don't you turn this, this rock into a piece of bread since you're hungry? Or why don't you jump off this cliff because God will rescue you if you do? And Jesus, who just heard this voice saying, this is my beloved son, what did he do? He claimed that as his identity. So Henry Nouwen, a Christian writer, puts it this way. The temptations in the desert are temptations to move away from the identity as beloved son, to believe that he was someone else. You're the one who can turn stone into bread. You're the one who can jump from the temple. You're the one who can make others bow to your power. Jesus said, no, no, no. I am the beloved from God of God. Every day we claim as our identity, friend of God. I'm not an enemy of God. If Jesus had to do it, we have to do it. So that means that we can be a community of people who are all loved and accepted and as a result can take risks in loving and accepting and welcoming others who can do things that scare us and that otherwise we wouldn't do because we know we're accepted, because we know that we're loved. We can go out of our way to meet someone who's here for the first time because although I might be a nervous person or anxious about me, I can do it because God has welcomed me when I was far off and now I can welcome him and greet them. We can bless our enemies instead of persecuting them and looking to get even. When someone wrongs you, you can pour kindness upon them. Why? Because you're already accepted and loved by God. He's already your friend. You see, when making friends can be a risky business, can be quite an anxious-inducing experience. At school, we had loads of friends or loads of people around, so you had loads of options of making friends. As you grow up and become an adult, you meet less and less new people, so befriending people gets harder and harder. And now Amy and I talk about dating people that we meet who are, we want to make friends with because it's, it's an anxious experience. We meet someone like, oh, I like them. They're a nice person. I'd like to hang out with them again. I don't want to be too keen. I don't want to put myself out there. I don't want to think I'm weird. Like, I can't text them five minutes after. Going, Lovely to see you. We should do it again sometime. And then 10 minutes later, when should we do it? I can't do that. I've got to be careful because I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be damaged by them. Now, I joke, but when you put yourself out there for people, it, it is an insecure experience. But if you know you've already been befriended by God, if you know you've already received love, you can give it away. And this is the shocking thing, that God puts himself out there for us. Whether you're a Christian or not, you might have been coming to church for weeks and months and just thought, I don't care for any of this, it's just they're nice people. Fine, we, we greatly, it's great that you're here. But even if that's your position, God's still there holding out an offer of invitation saying, come and be my friend. God is always putting himself out there for people saying, I choose you. I, choo I don't choose you, God. I'd rather do my, yeah, but I choose you. My choosing of you is not conditional upon anything that you do is what God would say. So how do we respond to this great truth that in Christ you are God's friend? Well, firstly, we, we need to have our, our thinking about God rewired. He's not a headmaster with a, a cane who's going to tell us off. He's not an austere Victorian father looking to discipline us. He's a friend. So you approach him as you would a friend. And as soon as I say that, a lot of people just want to jump and go, yeah, yeah, but he's holy and we've got to be reverent. And we get all that. I don't think that's our problem. Maybe for some of us it is. But 
What Jesus is wanting to drive home to his disciples here is that you're a friend of his. Now live with him, engage with him through the stuff of life as a friend, confidently walking into a room of people you don't know, going, I'm a friend of God. It doesn't matter what the world says about me, how people judge me because I'm loved and accepted by him. Because in Christ that is true of you. Get that and may that be an iron kind of girder for your soul. You'd live and look at life differently because you know you're forgiven, you know you're accepted, you know you've been reconciled to God, and that He's your friend. I'm going to pray. Now, if you're not a believer at this point, you are welcome to pray as well for the first time. Abraham became a friend of God by obeying Him and trusting Him, and Moses by speaking to Him face to face. Jesus says, You can be my friend if you obey my command, if you reach out to me in faith. Say, help me to follow you. I repent of my sin. I want to try. You can do that. So as I pray, make this your prayer. This might be the first prayer for you. But you can say your resounding amen at the end and we'll close with a song of celebration about what it means to be a friend of God. Father, I thank you that the thing that we were born for and wired with, you've given to us the thing that we search after, you've offered to us. And I thank you that where we were an enemy of yours, you've removed that enmity so that now we can be friends. I pray for us as a church, God, that you would make us a group of people confident, confident in the knowledge that we are loved by God, that we are friends of his. I pray, Father, for any people in this room who don't yet know you, that they would today take the first steps of saying, I want to follow you. In fact, if you're not a believer and you want to, let me help you out by praying. Just repeat the words I'm about to say. You can pray them in your head or out loud. It's up to you. But you can say this. God, I'm sorry for the wrong that I've done. I'm sorry for the ways I've disobeyed you. Today, I choose to trust you. Today, I choose to be a friend of yours. Help me to learn from you and live as you want me to. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand to our feet, guys, and celebrate together?